We're not on a mission to uh, to slay any traditions this morning, but simply to look at what the gospel tells us about Jesus' birth and the shepherds who were summoned to see him. I had two readings from Luke's gospel, and that's mostly what we're going to be going from. If you've been around church any length of time, the words will be so familiar, it's easy to hear the first few words of each reading and then just drift off into a mist of... Nine lessons and carols, mince pies, nativity plays. And the mention of shepherds has probably just filled your mind with images of children in dressing gowns. With towels on their heads, so just to make it harder for you, put, put a picture up and then you can get it out of your system. <clears throat> anyway, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, we're in, we're in 4 BC or thereabouts. Due to a minor error in the modern calendar, Jesus was born B.C., but obviously no one knew that at the time. Luke's just recounted the tale of John's birth, the child promised to Elizabeth and Zechariah that we heard about by the angel Gabriel, that he's going to be the prophet and the forerunner to the Messiah, promised saviour of Israel. Now Luke gives us some background on the first few verses of chapter 2 to bring the story from Elizabeth's house in the Judean hill country to Bethlehem. It's about 15 months, probably, since Zechariah's encounter with Gabriel in the temple, and about six since John's birth. Mary went home to Nazareth about the time John was born, so she and husband-to-be Joseph need to be moved to Bethlehem for Jesus' birth. So enter the Emperor Augustus. That's an actor pretending to be Augustus, but we don't actually have any pictures. Augustus issued a decree to bring the tax registers up to date. As David mentioned at the start of this series, at the beginning of December, the Romans were very keen on taxing people they conquered and liked to make sure they didn't miss anyone. In this case, Augustus is also unwittingly acting as God's stagehand to move his actors into their appointed places. And you remember, it's not the first time that God's used a pagan emperor to move his plans along and ensures the fulfilment of the prophecy we heard quoted from Micah 5.2, quoted in the reading from Matthew 2.6, that <clears throat> the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, in Judea. We'll see a bit more of Augustus in a minute, but for now, just notice that Joseph had to go to Bethlehem near Jerusalem in Judea, to register. Now, though Luke emphasizes that Joseph was a descendant of King David and so was connected to Bethlehem by birth, the Romans taxed people where they had property or income. They followed the money. So the implication is that Joseph was not only connected to Bethlehem by genealogy, but he or his family had taxable property there rather than in Nazareth. Now, Matthew's Gospel end of chapter 2, says that Joseph brought his family back from refuge in Egypt after King Herod died, he would have gone back to Judea, but was afraid of Herod's son, Achelaus, so made his new home in Nazareth in Galilee at that time. So it's quite likely that Joseph's original family home was in Bethlehem, although the family had found him a wife, Mary, among their relatives in Nazareth which of course means that although we don't have Mary's genealogy, we can reasonably assume that she's also a descendant of David. In a culture where marriages are arranged by senior members of the family, 
And on this occasion, the elders have brought together a quite remarkable couple whose willingness to obey God in difficult circumstances is going to be essential. And as Amanda explained two weeks ago, the betrothal ceremony, the Erosene, has occurred before Mary became pregnant. But the wedding, the Nisuin ceremony, are still to be completed. And that's traditionally done in the groom's father's house, or if the father isn't around, somewhere where his senior relatives are living. After that, the couple can set up their own home. Now, having said all that, we can slightly re-script the nativity play and stop worrying about whether Mary and her donkey will get to Bethlehem in time for the birth and whether the hotel will have any rooms left. Mary got back from Nazareth, to Nazareth, sorry, from Elizabeth's house about three months pregnant, leading to Matthew's account, Joseph's initial reaction being he thought he should divorce her. You remember from what Amanda said, uh, it's Amanda said, that an engagement is the first part of the marriage. It needs to be broken off formally. Joseph couldn't just say, forget it, to Mary and walk away. Then Joseph's visited by an angel and told to go ahead. And Matthew then says that Joseph married Mary but didn't consummate the marriage until after Jesus had been born. Since Luke says they travelled to Bethlehem as an engaged couple, it looks possible, can't prove it, but it looks possible that Joseph brought Mary to his ancestral home of Bethlehem in good time and completed the marriage ceremonies there. It's a journey of about 80 miles, four to seven days on foot, but they had plenty of time. Celebrations are probably a bit quieter than they might have hoped for since Mary was obviously pregnant and a few tongues no doubt wagged. But they were married, as Matthew 1.24 says, before Jesus was born. And that awkward little word at the end of verse 7, kataluma, means something like their room or the guest room, as we heard, rather than the Bethlehem Hotel. And Jesus would be born in the common room of the house which in a peasant house of the time is going to be joined to the room for the animals, provide space for midwives and a handy feeding trough. Here's a reconstruction. <laughs> it's easier to see in Lego than photos of real houses that are 2,000 years old, I assure you. I looked at a few and we're going with the Lego. So we've got the guest room, the Greek bit at the top there, Cataluma. It might be at the end there. Sometimes, apparently, it was built on the roof. You've got a living room in the middle, and the animals, for your expensive animal, like a donkey, gets the special quarters at the end there. And you've got a manger in the middle, which is handy for a baby. Even if Joseph was, for some reason, actually short of close family in Bethlehem, then kinship, hospitality, all the traditions wouldn't leave a young couple isolated at the birth of a child. So rather than a lonely stable with just Mary, Joseph and a few animals, including of course an exhausted donkey, the scene in house or stable is probably a bit busy with people, animals under one roof and probably slightly different floor levels as here and the baby in a feeding trough on the main floor. Because it's a birth scene Mary's going to be helped by other women and Joseph's been politely ushered out of the way to wait until it's all over. Typical peasant birth scene, except that the baby is anything but typical. 
And what's just happened is the most significant birth in human history, and almost no one knows about it. Clearly, people should be told. And the obvious people to be told are the important people in Jerusalem, the king, the council, the rulers of Israel. But that's not God's plan. The leaders of the nation aren't all corrupt, but most of them are, especially Herod the Great, who's in his last years and as brutal as ever. Those who aren't personally corrupt are compromised by the company they're keeping. The kind of leaders that Ezekiel chapter 34 speaks about, false shepherds who exploit but don't protect the flock, the people of God. So the announcement's not going to go to them yet. God's decided to announce the birth to a bunch of common people of Israel, some ordinary Judean shepherds. Now shepherds around this time get a bit of a mixed press. On the one hand, the early patriarchs from Abraham to Jacob had been shepherds. Moses was a shepherd for a while, and of course David, founder of the royal line of kings, was a shepherd before becoming a warrior and a king. God himself is sometimes described as a shepherd. Jacob describes him that way in Genesis. David, obviously, in Psalm 23. Isaiah, chapter 40, speak of God as the shepherd. So shepherding's an honourable occupation, but by this time in Israel its status had fallen rather, so rich men stopped doing any shepherding themselves and hired others to do it for them. It meant that shepherds tended to either be poor peasants looking after a small flock on their own, or hired men looking after somebody much richer's big flock. Hard work for small rewards, and the temptation to do a little pilfering on the side was considerable. Some accounts around the time suggest that a pious shopper shouldn't buy anything from a shepherd. Some claim that shepherds weren't allowed to be witnesses in court, though that's controversial. It might be an exaggeration, but you get the idea. And of course, if you might be as bright and ambitious as Jacob or David, it isn't actually essential to be that smart to look after sheep. And shepherds, as Sean will testify tended to smell like sheep after a while, which could lead them to having very few non-shepherd friends. There's a a midrash, an ancient commentary on Psalm 23 verse 2 that says, there is no more disreputable occupation than that of a shepherd. The flocks, by the way, probably weren't just sheep. You need some of these. Actually, quite a few of them. Apparently the poor grazing in Palestine means the flock's best made up of a mix of about two goats to three sheep. That way you get good use of the land, more milk, because you get more milk from goats, and goats reproduce more quickly than sheep, so there's a better chance of a roast dinner from time to time. Anyway, back to the Gospel, and our shepherds, verse 8, most likely a scruffy bunch of unremarkable men, sitting on a hillside, possibly around a little fire, fairly tough, their their cudgels and their sticks to hand, in case of trouble, probably not over smart, and looking after their employer's flock of sheep, and of course goats, in the dark. It's near Jerusalem, the flocks possibly destined for sale to pilgrims needing to sacrifice in the temple, which would have been a, a good little earner for their employer, but the shepherds probably don't get any share of the profits. Any other night, routine night at work, 
bit of stargazing, maybe telling each other stories that all heard a hundred times before. And there wouldn't be anything much happening, which is as normal. And suddenly they get the fright of their lives. We don't have a description of the angel, but it probably didn't look like this. <laughs> Very sweet, but might have startled them, but it probably wouldn't have terrified them. Angels seem to have whatever appearance their mission requires, and this one had a proclamation to make, so it was probably large, maybe heavily armed, a bit like a human herald, only bigger. That's better. A bit more scary. Shouldn't really have wings, though. In the Bible, the seraphim have wings, the cherubim have wings, but not the angels. Somebody needs to tell artists about this. If you look for pictures of angels, you get wings. Anyway, and there's also an awful lot of light around. Glory of God shining around them. And in a world where once the sun went down, the brightest things you've got are bonfires and oil lamps. Sudden appearance of the angel and the light must have been truly terrifying. And statements about nobody being able to see God and live may well have come to mind. Some more light. Unlike the appearances to Zechariah and Mary, Luke doesn't tell us the angel's name, but it may well have been Gabriel again. And he's got a message. As usual, the first thing to do is tell them not to be so frightened. He's come with good news, great joy, and it's not just good news for a select few, it's good news for all the people. His announcement is, as we know, birth. Today in Bethlehem, a saviour who is Christ the Lord. That's a familiar enough expression in church, but it would have been stunning for the shepherds. You remember what David said a few weeks ago about how long it had been since the prophetic word had been heard in Israel. How long they'd been waiting for the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. How long they'd felt like they were in exile even in their own country. And the Messiah would bring God's promised salvation and freedom to them. Centuries of waiting... And suddenly an angel pops out of the sky and says, Messiah's been born, and here's how you can recognize him. The Savior is here. When we hear the term Savior applied to Jesus, we tend to think first of Jesus as our personal Savior, the one who can free us from the powers of sin and death through his death and resurrection. That's a perfectly good understanding. One we need to be sure applies to us individually. And if if Jesus Christ isn't yet your saviour in that sense, then you need to make sure he is. As it happens, it's a decision I made at a carol service a long time ago now. And I can assure you this is a very good time to do it. If you're not sure where you stand with respect to Jesus Christ, or simply need someone to pray and talk with you, then the prayer team don't stop for Christmas, and they'll be there at the back under their banner after the service. But having said that, I suspect the shepherds didn't think first of a personal saviour, but rather more of a saviour of the nation that Zechariah had prophesied about in previous chapter in Luke, 169. It'll bring forgiveness of sins, personal, 177, but also bring national liberation from oppressors. In other words, get rid of the Romans, latest in a long line of pagan oppressors of Israel. Being a saviour... It's also a term that's often applied to the rulers of nations. It's a title that's applied to Augustus, the Roman emperor, 
even if arguably he'd only saved the Romans from the civil war he started in the first place and was seen as an oppressor by the Jews. Augustus also laid claim to a couple of other titles that would be given or implied here by the angel. Gabriel told Mary that her, her son would be the son of God. By a slightly circuitous line of reasoning, Augustus was also known as the son of God. In brief, it goes like this. Julius Caesar murdered 15th of March, 44 BC, the Ides of March. 42 BC, the Senate decreed that Julius Caesar had become a god. This was handy for Julius because he gets to get out of Hades' free card and could relocate to the abode of the gods, to nectar or whatever it is Roman gods do. Even more handy for the young man Julius had adopted as his son and heir, his great-nephew Gaius Octavius, now Gaius Julius Caesar, who's very much alive and has just become the son of a god. 27 BC, he gets the title we are more familiar with, and Luke uses Augustus. They had to invent a word for him. It means roughly the revered one. The emperor being son of God might be regarded in some scepticism back in Republican Rome, and of course is rejected outright by the Jews. But it's accepted in large parts of the empire. So, for example, there's an inscription in Pergamum, which refers to Augustus as Emperor Caesar, son of God, Augustus, ruler of all land and sea. And he made sure that there's an idealized image of him all over the empire. Saviour of the empire, son of a god, and ruler of all he surveyed. Now the angel declares that a child just born in a peasant house in Bethlehem is the saviour, the anointed one, which is a sign of kingship, and the lord. Lord, as you know, being the word kyrios, that in the Greek Bible is used to represent the divine name, Yahweh, as well as its more general meaning of master or authority. So it's a very political claim from the angel here that threatens the current regime in Jerusalem and Rome and it's going to lead to violence in due course. And that little word is, and I've checked, it is there in the Greek, challenges some theories, ancient and modern, that say that Jesus was in some way incomplete when he was born and needed to be made properly fit for purpose by the Holy Spirit later on, such as at his baptism. The angel's quite clear that the child is already Saviour, Messiah and Lord. And he gives the shepherds details where to find their saviour. Details, apart from the practical nature of finding him, would also have reassured the shepherds that they're not looking for a palace where the doorman might turn them away. They're looking for an ordinary household with a baby in a feeding trough. Somewhere shepherds might be welcome. And just as they're getting used to having one angel around, a whole lot more turn up. Since angels are obedient creatures, they must have been given permission. But it is a bit tempting to see the heavenly host overwhelmed with joy at what God's doing and pleading to be allowed to go and share the praise. Anyway, they burst into view. I'm not quite sure how big a multitude is. But since Jesus later said that he could ask for 12 legions of angels at a moment's notice, it's probably at least 12,000 of them, which is an awful lot of angels. And Luke says they're not singing, but chanting or speaking a bit like a celestial football crowd chanting the praises of God and proclaiming peace to those whom 
God favours. Because the Romans brought a version of peace in their empire. It's the kind of peace you get when you haven't got the strength to fight anymore. It's actually a Roman writer, Tacitus, that gave us one of the most famous definitions of Roman rule in a speech he gives to Calgarchus. They create desolation and call it peace. God's peace isn't like that. It's characterised by justice and mercy, quietness, plenty. The rule of a creator who, as Paul would later say in 2 Corinthians, he's reconciled the world to himself through the Messiah. And frankly, it's one of the mysteries of the gospel that the God who could destroy any rival in an instant chooses instead to enter the created world in apparent helplessness in order to bring his peace. And then the angels are gone. It's quiet. It's dark again. They pick themselves up and think, now what? Quickly decide there's no time to waste. They need to go and see what God has done. It says they made haste. They could have waited until the morning. They could have appointed someone to keep an eye on the flock and generally manage things. But they've got the importance of the moment. God's spoken, so off they go. In a small town like Bethlehem, it's not hard to find who's got a newborn baby. And the scene is exactly as the angel described. Simple enough. New mother, father, or at least so it seems, baby in the feeding trough, wrapped up in the usual way in bands of cloth. I don't suppose Jesus actually glowed, but it helps the artist. They pour out their story. The angel, the message from heaven, more angels... It's not exactly a run-of-the-mill shepherd's tale, and Luke tells us everyone was amazed. Seems a bit of a crowd gathered, and the shepherds told everyone. Someone asked in a meeting recently what we mean by witnessing. It's a slightly jargon phrase, which simply means telling other people what God has done. Shepherds didn't have the full story. You can see that. Unlike the wise men, the magi, who came later, there's no mention of them worshipping the child. These men are still good Jews, and they worship one God who's beyond his created world. They couldn't bow down to a human being yet. Incarnations way beyond their theology. They're still expecting a Messiah to throw out the Romans, and they didn't have the understanding that Jesus' followers would later come to, that actually he's going to bring peace with God to the Gentiles, the Romans, as well as the Jews. And they do that not by a terrific military victory, but by giving his life on a cross. They were hard lessons even for Jesus' closest followers to learn, and the shepherds just aren't there yet. But they told what they knew. Well, most people here would have a bigger understanding of Jesus than the shepherds could possibly have at this point. We don't know it all. And there may be things of God that we're plain confused about at the minute, but we can tell what we do know to those around us. And they, in turn, can be amazed at what God has said and done. We can try it and see. So the shepherds went back to work. Still praising God for everything they'd heard and seen, back to the flocks. And there they drop out of history. It's a nice thought that maybe when Jesus entered Jerusalem 30-odd years later, there were some elderly shepherds at the crowd shouting, It's him! It's him! or whatever, and telling their story, but actually we have no evidence. It's much more likely we know the story from Mary's memories. He several times in in his uh, writing, Luke uses phrases like, Mary treasured up all these things in the heart. Uh, 
So it's probably that she's his source for, for, for these stories, as well as those private ones that could only be known to her. She never wrote a gospel, but it seems almost certain that her testimony, her telling of what God did to her and around her, is there in Luke's gospel. She's one of the eyewitnesses that Luke mentions right at the start of his book, and his stories were handed on to him. A more private witness than those excited shepherds, but a witness nevertheless. So, what do we learn from this scruffy bunch of Jewish blokes? Hannah would like to make her way back up. Yeah. They, heard, they heard from God. When we hear from God, we sometimes need to test it, but I guess a sky full of angels is pretty convincing. We may not, in fact, probably won't get a personal visit from a messenger angel and a sky full of his chums, but the word of God is still revealed to us, primarily in the scriptures, sometimes in other ways. Shepherds acted on what they heard. They went to see the child and they did it urgently. And once they'd seen the truth of what God said to them, they told those around them. And in the centre of the process, when they saw the, pro- the promise of God being fulfilled, they praised him for what he was doing by sending the promised Messiah. And with the benefit of knowing what the rest of the story is, we can go further. Not just praise God for sending the Messiah, but worship the Messiah who also is the Lord God and our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. So let's come to praise him now.